Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Bollocks. Hello, welcome back or welcome if it's the first time. This is the Bollocks of Talking, Talking Bollocks. I am your host, Howard H. Smith. Well, recently played some dates with Acid Rain, who I sing in, UK thrash band. Uh, did a comedy show last night. Can't direct you to the website because I've taken it down because nobody uses websites anymore. Um, but, you know, if you want to, you can find it. Um, Talking Bollocks podcast here, follow that. Uh, the band, follow that. I'll also host the Motocast, the official Modern podcast. Check that out. And The Reducer, which is a football podcast I do with two comedy friends. So, um, welcome, welcome back. Please subscribe, yada yada, all the same usual bullshit that you get on every other podcast. But also, please support the podcast Patreon. There is a link in the description. Uh, click support the podcast Patreon. $6 a month gets you fucking everything. Just $3 a month gets you the podcast early and the ability to interact with guests to be able to, you know, su supply questions ahead of interviews that you'd like to ask people you've always wanted to ask questions of. You get the podcast early and you get a few other bits and pieces as well. That's $3. You can go also up to $6.00. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Howard H. Smith. Everybody seems to enjoy it and like it and stays forever. Um, it is good value for money. There's a shitload of content. It's, I promise you, it's not like other patron Patreons, okay? That's that all out of the way. So, welcome to all of you. You bollockers, you. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. A little sip of water there. Don't want to end up getting dry mouth and going all on you. You know what I mean. Anywho, let's crack on with what's been happening in the world of metal since last we spoke. Well, a little bit of a change. I decided to go. Um, I decided to go and have a little look around Metal Injection, who were smashing out various pieces of news. And um, yeah, uh, I'm, it's much of a muchness, but there seems to be more of a connection. Uh, it seems to be less. Um, press releases just turned into stories, which is blabbermouth. This does seem to actually offer a little bit more um, in the way of comment on the news as well, like each news article. Um, you know, there's somebody taking responsibility for it, as it were. So anyway, let's go to the... Uh, straight away, I, I saw this tweet and um, and then I saw a news story about it, which I thought was quite interesting anyway. Venues taking a percentage of bands' merchandising revenue every night isn't helpful when touring is already stupidly expensive, uh, possibly even worse soon, and bands are sick of it. Dark funeral guitarist Lord Ariman has said that venues will slowly kill live music scene with their outrageous merch cut. While Bad Omens has stated they don't want to give 20% of the merchandise we design, we pay for, manage, set up, carry and sell ourselves because you gave us 24, squ 24 square foot of floor space in your venue which we sold out. I mean, that's pretty damning. Now Architects drummer Dan Searle is joining in the conversation and he, like every other musician, is trying to make a living in 2023, is pissed. Hey bands, when are we going to go on strike and get rid of these insane venue merch cuts, said Searle. Or maybe we don't play until we can get a cut of the bar. Can we just get this done ASAP, please? Yeah, it's that simple, just to bring everyone together. I mean, you know, it's not going to happen, is it? Searle got a few responses from fellow musicians, all who are equally irritated that their bottom line is being cut into. Because really, if there are no bands, then how else would venues exist? Um, 
Devil's Wear Pro- Devil Wear Prada guitarist Jamie DePoister, great name. Merch Barcut seems only fair, especially when our um, uh, when our median fan ages are thirty plus. When a corporate venue owns the bar as well. Silent Planet drummer, never heard of them. Alex Camarina has. Um, this has been an, a night where our merch has uh, cut has been double our guarantee. Oh dear. Architect frontman uh, Sam uh, Carter said, venue in Melbourne took 15% and it took four hours for them to get our merch girl a light. <laughs> Straight from the path drummer Craig Ennels, it's almost like one company bought all the venues during the pandemic so they could do this more often. And then finally, Dino Carazares, who we'll be uh, hearing from in a bit, uh, dove into it a little deeper, saying why touring is so expensive during a recent interview, citing everything from pre-pandemic pre pandemic contracts still being in play to the rising cost of fuel check that and then maybe go and buy your band's favorite vinyl or shirt they probably need the support yeah there's more to it than that i mean that might be what it's like in the states um pre-pandemic contracts not a thing just for people who have been too fucking lazy to tour since then dino um or have been you know training a, a singer that no one's heard of or cares about anywho um it's not Pre-pandemic contracts, no, it may be for you. Rising cost of fuel, yes. But the other things is the effect on the music industry since um, the pandemic, which is a lot of bus companies had to restructure their businesses. There's not going to be any touring going on for a long time. And also, as, as I think I said or, or, you know, way back in lockdown, um, things like concerts will be the last things to come back. So, you know basically music touring bus companies couldn't just sit there and wait for tours to come back so all sorts of businesses had to restructure so that's tour bus companies that's trucking companies that is people within the music business so i know a guy who used to be a full-time front of house um sound engineer he was always touring highly in demand um he has a regular nine-to-five job now, which he had to get because of the pandemic, and has kind of gone. Do you know what? I don't. I, I don't need to go back on the road. So um, yeah, the basically the expertise in the industry. We've lost a lot of expertise within the industry, um, and a lot of companies. That's why uh, bus companies are fewer, so they're putting their prices up, which is you know as they would, and then there's fuel on top of that which is more expensive so it's an absolute fucking nightmare at the moment and it's not helped by the venues but then again the venues were all sat fucking empty during the pandemic which is the worst thing you can have for a building friend of mine business manager during the pandemic every day he had to go into a really big building um uh in central london and literally had to go in and make sure the heating had come on and ba- do a walk, do a, a sort of two hour walk tour of the building to make sure everything was okay and then go home and then do that for the following day as well. But anyway, that's just a normal building. Venues, etc. Um, like any other building, need maintenance, whether there's stuff going on or not. They're still getting battered by the weather. So everybody's had it shit. But the merch cuts were there before the pandemic. We just feel them a lot more now. Um, now, recently, I had an issue where um, with uh, the band Acid Rain, where we were offered a, a contract to play somewhere, and it was 25% of our merch plus 5% VAT, which uh, sorry, plus VAT, which is 5%. So it's 30% that they're taking of the merch. Um, 
so I wrote back and basically said, look, we will pay 15%, no VAT, for merch to be sold in the venue. If that is not acceptable, then we will find other ways of selling our merch at other locations, and you can have 30% of nothing. So it's up to you. 15% of what we sell, or 30% of nothing. Entirely up to you. To me, that seems like a fairly simple you know, a, a fairly simple decision. But again, you know, well, you know, you've got policies and, and well, if, well, if one band does it, other bands might hear about it, you know. So, yeah, anywho, I've gone. I think, I think I've covered that a lot, a lot more in depth than usual, frankly. Mm. So, yeah, let's go on to the next subject, shall we? And as hinted at there, yes, it's finally been revealed. The new vocalist of Fear Factory has finally been revealed, and it is Milo Silvestro. It's time to introduce the world to our new vocalist, said, said Dino Canazaras. The search was long and meticulous, but I know for sure we got the right guy. Let's just wait until you've been on tour with him for a couple of months, shall we, Dino, and then see if you're saying the same thing. It's a big week for us in Fear Factory as we make our final preparations for our return to the live stage, touring across America beginning the 25th of February on the Rise of the Machine tour, which came out, got to be nearly a year ago. We can't wait to get out on the road and start kicking some ass. So Silvestro, clearly very excited. I've been a fan of the band for many years and it feels uh, very surreal, brilliant. Another shit use of the word very. Fucking hell. Okay, tangent. I'm fucking sick of people putting very in front of every fucking word because they want to try and try and make it sound more. Well, very surreal is bullshit. Something is either surreal or it isn't. It can't be very surreal, like more, yeah? You can't have very more. You can have much more, yeah? You can't, you can't have more better, yeah? You can have more of something, or it can be better, but it can't be more better. And very fucking hell. It's, it's very awesome. No, it's awesome, or it's not awesome. Oh, it's like saying I was very devastated. No, you're either devastated or you're not. There is no gradient of devastation. There is just devastation or no devastation. You can't have very devastation and you can't have less devastation. Yeah, it's just fucking absolutely boils my piss. It really does. That phrase probably annoys his people as well. But, you know, hey, there you go. But it really fucking gets on my fucking nerves. All the time. Very, very, very... I heard one about it the other day, and I, I, honestly, I wish I could remember what it was. In fact, I'm glad I can't. My brain has just fucking dumped it. Thank fucking God. But, yeah, just fuck it. Now I've mentioned this, by the way, you are going to notice this all the time, how people cram the word very in purely because they're trying to accentuate something, and it doesn't fucking work. Anyway, there we go. Uh, the long-awaited uh, arrival of Fear Factory's new vocalist has actually become secondary to the main topic, which is the improper use of the word very in the English language. How fucking talking bollocks, hey? Anyway, next up, 
Ashley Morgan Smithline goes back on Marilyn Manson accusations, says Evan Rachel Wood manipulated her. Um, I'm not going to comment on this story other than to say that it's just really, really sad to see that um, metal, like any other part of society, you know, is subject to the same fucking bullshit um, of people getting a little bit carried away back in the day and doing things they shouldn't have done and uh, just the whole thing is grubby and I, I think if we've learned anything it's that Marilyn Manson needs to keep his dick in his fucking pants for the rest of his fucking life okay and not be a dick to men or women ever again in fact, women or men, which that is that that's the way that should be. So this next uh, this next bit, that was a bit heavy, wasn't it? Right. Well, let's go into something a lot lighter. Kings of Thrash, the band featuring former Megadeth members, David Lefson and guitarist Jeff Young, was recently in the studio recording their debut material. OK, that's all great. Now, King of Thrash is now streaming a live performance of their very first new song, Bridges Burned. And comment from the journalist here, which I completely agree with. Um, and I honestly cannot think of why they would why they would do this for a band that's gung ho gung ho about their riffs and overall sound. This sounds like it was recorded in a cave made of reverb pedals, and it's not like Kings of Thrash tried to slip this one under the radar for fans only. Alefson posted about it on Instagram and the band's in, it, it accounts, including a link. New. Here it is, our first Kings of Thrash original song, Bridges Burned, said Alefsum. One that has its origins from a riff Jeff brought back in 1988 intended to what became Rust in Peace. Yeah. Today, that riff laid the groundwork for a truly collaborative effort between the four of us in Kings of Thrash and paves the way for a creative path forward. More to come. And as the journey says, as the journalist says, journey. I, I look, I'm not dumping on Kings, the Kings of Thrash song because I can't really hear the song for the most part. For all I know, the song rips. It just seems like a strange choice of, to debut your band's first ever original material like this. That's all. I totally agree. And basically, what this says is, this is what happens when a bunch of musicians who've been in bands where they haven't been involved in stuff like this they haven't been involved in the releasing of new material they haven't been involved in the releasing of videos they've just been band members all of them now all of a sudden they are all like you know inverted commas band members not band leaders all of a sudden a load of band members with no leader well do you know what happens when you've got that situation what happens when you've got that situation is someone says it would be a good idea to release your first ever original song as a live video on YouTube and you can't fucking make out a thing nothing it's just it sounds well I don't know what it sounds like as the journalist says there it's just it's just not a very good live recording that's it it's just not a very good live recording and I mean I'll look I'll put a link I'll put a link up so you can all listen to this song that you can't really make out. So that's the only thing I can think of. Basically, yeah, they all thought this was a good idea. And unfortunately, they haven't got a band leader or a manager or anyone to go, guys, that's a shit idea. Don't do that. Then, next up after that, 
Dave Lefson says Exodus invented thrash and Lamb of God helped reset it in the 2000s. OK, that's what Dave Lefson said. Um, I'm not really buying into that. I just thought I'd throw it in there, you know. Um, this is this was very cool. Everyone cheats at downpicking. It's fine. Yes, even James Hatfield. Um, it's not very often you get three masters of their craft to talk shop, but thanks to Zoom and the good fortune of Anthrax Black Label Society and Exodus tearing up the stakes this winter, Guitar World was fortunate enough to have a chat with Gary Holt, Scott Ian and Zach Wilde. And um, talking about downpicking, Holt came clean sharing um, how every guitarist has their own little hacks. Everybody cheats, said Holt. Even James Hetfield cheats now. I've seen it enough time. If he's going a savage downpicking section, then he throws in a brrrmp. Um, that brump is there for a reason. It allows you to lose a couple of notes. It becomes really hard for me after battling this chronic tennis elbow in both arms. Towards the end of Slayer, I was getting so many cortisone injections, I couldn't even count them. It turns your tendons into mush. To be honest, it's, yeah, so obviously as thrash metal gets older, the people who created it get older and their ability to play it gets, um, well, it gets harder for them. And, um, that's totally understandable and it's completely allowed you know that's just the way it is that's just the way it is but yeah it's also a kind of reminder of the fact that where this you know how sort of how young this music is and the fact we've got the creators still with us at the moment is pretty amazing how much longer though i know oh, fuck me this really cheerful podcast howard yeah fucking hell sorry guys so lastly Paradise Lost, Greg McIntosh on modern on modern mainstream metal. It's safer than pop, uh, pop music, which um, I kind of thought amusing. Um, he said, um, metal is supposed to be rebellious, isn't it? To us, it was starting to become a bit stagnant and not rebellious. As it turns out, it's become, I mean, mainstream metal is now safer than pop music. It's all got the same production, the same everything. It's kind of just like lukewarm water. So... Yeah. To us, the rebellious thing to do was something that was unexpected by the audience, which is he referring to, uh, you know, their earlier career when they just took some some really big leaps in different directions. But just kind of, I I was, you know, I was just surprised to hear from somebody from Paradise Lost. I was surprised to hear from Greg because you don't hear from Greg very often. Um, and um, yeah, sound comments totally agree. Mainstream metal has got too comfortable too mainstream and uh, a bit too rubbish for me but there you go right it's interview time that's right interview time it's interview time so that's the new jingle just created it hope you like it probably never hear that again now this is with a man i have not seen for over 30 years um john keenan is a legendary promoter who promoted the Duchess of York, the Futurama Festival, basically all around Leeds and Yorkshire. A huge, huge noise back in the day. And as you'll find out during this interview, he has booked some huge acts all the way up. Told Oasis they should change their name. <laughs> um, and yeah, it just really sound. And John has been around long enough to not really care um, what people think of him. Um, so... When he's asked a question, he answers it honestly and straight. And yeah, the names are mentioned. He doesn't leave anybody out. 
it's a. I really enjoyed this. Really enjoyed it. Um, haven't seen or spoken to him for so many years. Still promoting, and still, still just as much of a legend as he always was. This was John Keane and I having a chat um, last year, but not that long ago. So, John, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for doing this. I genuinely can't believe you're here doing this because the the early years of of, of Acid Rain, you were very much involved. We we played the Duchess tons of times. I used to I used to go and see so many bands there. I mean, it's passed into absolute legend. The amount of times I hear the Duchess of York brought up in conversation over the years is just is phenomenal. So, where did it where did it all begin for you? Well, it began when I was uh, at art college in the 60s. Uh, I was uh, social sec when I was 17. Right. But it was Bluesbreakers, supposedly with Eric Clapton, but turned out that this young chap called Peter Green replaced him and everybody was disappointed. Oh, no. <laughs> I think at the end of the gig, they were quite happy. <laughs> yeah and was that was that kind of like your first foray into sort of being put in charge of you know organizing everything or had you always always been somebody who'd like you know put parties together and stuff things things like that yeah. um, you know the social sec i'd booked the bands but the school it was the art school ball and the the head bandit and basically uh one of the students uh, had had an argument with the school caretaker and uh, the head had, had uh, sided with him and decided to ban it. So I just thought, I'll, I'll do it myself. But truth to form, I lost about 20 quid and my dad wasn't going to stump up. So I offered to work at the venue um, to pay it off, so I worked, started work there, which is quite good because I, uh, I went from the cloakroom. I was only seventeen, couldn't serve drinks, to working on the door because I was in a judo club at the time, and they thought that I might be useful. <laughs> so, so that was kind of like, you know, uh, um, I mean, but how do how do you go from there to sort of becoming a promoter? Um, well, 10 years later, I was working at YTV and I just thought, is this going to be all my life? I was freelance, so uh, I wasn't always there full time, but, you know, I did lots of other things like I did uh, flea markets and uh, Queen's Hall in Leeds. Queen's Hall in Leeds, yeah. Yeah. But while I was uh, going around the antique shops, I found this little... Um, fisherman uh, that looked like it was plastic but I thought it looks like ivory and uh, I put it in auction and uh, bought it for 50p put it in auction and it fetched about uh, 250 quid you know which in those days was uh, a lot of money 77 I think you know it's a big stone so I thought I'll use it I'll put on a big gig at the Grand Theatre so I rang up the agent. I wanted to put Lou Reed on or somebody like that. And all he could offer me was uh, Alan Price, you know. Uh, 
So I thought, well, let's just start on St. Alan Price. And uh, I uh, promoted him at Leeds Grand and again, lost, lost a bit of money, lost basically. <laughs> but I enjoyed doing it and I just continued doing things. And it's, it, you know, people don't believe me, but it's never been about the money. It's been about making things happen. About doing things, I really like making things happen. I think, well, I made that happen. I brought those bands together. People have met the wives of my gigs. People have met their future life partners, handing out leaflets from the the union, all over the place. So basically, I, I you know, I, I like the idea of of making something happen, making memories. Uh, and I'm pleased to do that, probably more so than making money, which, you know, I either have money or I don't have money. That, that's the way I've always looked at it. To me, it's quite an abstract concept. I, I, don't, I don't go in for flash cars or jewellery or anything like that. You know, I don't, I don't get off on that. But I do get off on having a good gig and uh, making it all work. Yeah, and do you know what? I'm I, I'm in complete agreement because clearly we were never even in the, in the money for it either. Uh, sorry, in, the, in it for the money either. And uh, but the stories over the years of people who met at our shows and um, I'll, I'll never forget when we came back in 2015. Um, I got stopped by somebody in the crowd and I was trying to make my way to to friends that I knew who were there. And I said, look, I'd love to chat, but I've got to keep moving. And he just said, oh, I just wanted to tell you why you were responsible for um, uh, four marriages and eight children. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, OK, I'll have a listen. And that was they all met at a gig. Did you get a demand for uh, maintenance? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, no. Luckily, no, it was all just, it was all them. But they, you know, they all met one year at one of our gigs, all got on really well, but didn't swap phone numbers, so had no way of keeping in touch. So the next time we played, they just all made sure they went. And rest is history. But, but you know, that, that that's a good feeling, isn't it? You think, yeah. Yeah. Did that happen? You know, we made, you know, we brought people together. And that's yes. what gets. You, you go to any gig, you find that the people in the audience are pretty much the same as the people on stage. You know, they dress the same. You know, I went to a big jam concert and everybody had, like, thin lapel jackets and black ties. And you went to a motorhead concert and everybody had denims and biker gear and leathers. And, uh, yeah. It used to work like that. But basically, the, the all the people there for one reason and that is they like the music of the act that they're going to see and uh, that uh, at the duchess it means all things to a lot of different people because i i structured the nights that you know we'd have a comedy or a folk night then we'd have a a bluesy soli night then we'd have a, a a glam rock night we'd have an indie night and so all different nights, and I tried to make it all on the same night every every week if you look. And uh, so people who were into different genres, they all have fond memories of places like the Duchess and the Ford Green I was doing before that, and the Astoria and the Irish Centre. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, 
it's, you know, I'm reaching out to a diverse crowd, you know, with different interests, but they all think well of the venues that are promoted. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that is a, that's a key as well, because as you say, you, you used to curate, you know, you'd curate your nights and, and they invariably always absolutely hit the right note. You know, there was, the, it was the, it was the right bands playing with the right bands at the right time. Um, and I mean, I look at that, I look at the the flyer I saw recently for the, for that last future armor show. And even that there was, it was three different nights. You couldn't get three more different kind of vibes and three different kind of bills, but all back to back, all in the same, you know, all in the same venue on the same weekend. Um, it, it's, it, you know, I want to say those were the days, but um, do you think do you think things have changed beyond beyond all recognition now? No, everybody's a promoter now. All you've got to do is put a Facebook event up, and you're a promoter. You know, when I was doing things, going even to the 1989, which was the last future on, everything I had to do by hand. Uh, it was all cut and paste, uh, and. Uh, wasn't easy, you know. It, you know, it could take a while to do a poster, and uh, uh, it was just, you know, even booking the acts. It was all by phone, listening to tape, cassette tapes, doing everything by phone. Now you just uh, press a button, and, and you can hear what a band sounds like. Uh, you can take ten minutes to set up a Facebook event. Uh, you can make a poster on PDF, you know, within half an hour. And uh, all done things that used to take me days to do, you know, hours in an evening, uh, you know, you can do in like in a couple of hours now. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to be a promoter, that's all I'm saying. You know, we used to go around town putting posters up. But you don't really need to now because people don't go into the city centre that often and they they get all their information from Facebook, the internet or Instagram or any of those sites. Yeah, and you used to spend, uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible the amount of time. You probably spent more time designing and putting together the promotional materials than, than anything else, than, than actually booking the bands. Oh, from the last one, I did all the graphics all the artwork i even numbered the tickets myself you know and sent them for you didn't have ticket links or whatever you you, you could only buy tickets in from record shops or from me you know by posting to a a, a, a post box you know a, a, what do you call it you know i had a a po box a po number yeah yeah and uh, so you know, that was it. And every morning I'd get a load of letters that I had to send tickets in. You know, sometimes it'd be a couple of thousand, you know, over the period. And it's it's quite amazing. I want to think back. I only had six weeks to promote the future arms. I did them in six weeks. It was basically, I started them. My, my wife used to go on holiday with the kids to uh, Germany, Czechoslovakia. Uh, where her mother lived and they used to go there through the summer so while they were away that's when I was doing all that stuff <laughs> together and but it was like a heck of a lot of work 
Uh, and sometimes I had something going on at YTV, like a contract, whatever, at the same time. It was a heck of a lot of work. And never made any money on the future armies. You know, the ones that I made money on and I invested in making films, and then the film, com- film companies uh, ripped me off. And when I tried to sue them, they went bust. So <laughs> it's like the, the film business is worse than the music business. You know, it's all. And so, you know, I stopped doing the future hours. And then I only reluctantly did the last one that you were on because the Evening Post asked people to suggest what they wanted because of Queen's Hall was being pulled down. Yeah. Uh, shows to be a lot of people wrote in and said another future armor so uh you know i was like going to oh go on it's the last one at the queen's hall and then the month before the gig um uh, we found out that the, the queen's hall rank oh our music license has expired but it's all right we can get another one so we applied to the town hall went there and uh, this guy sidled up to me and said uh, no, you've got to use the security. And I said, well, yeah, I know that security firm. Half the security I use uh, work for them. You know? And he said, and you've got to use the staging. I said, no. I, I use the staging from Manchester that are really good. And the last one uh, at the Queen's Hall, when they used that staging, uh, was um, the ream The stage collapsed. I said, I want to use the ones that I'm comfortable with. So I went in, and uh, there was a, an oldish lady on the committee, and she looked at the names of the bands, Dub Sex, Drug Free America, and she says, we're not having people like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's nobody playing like And they, they, they uh, didn't give the music license for the last uh, month of the uh, Queen's Hall. So I had to think quick. I had all these acts books and promised them, fees and that so I uh, had to cobble it together uh, and that's why I put them into different categories I just thought the only way I could do this is by appealing to three different crowds uh, but at the end of the day the the uh, heavy metal rock crowd was the least attended and the best attended was the uh, the one with James and Thor and the indie thing you know that yeah. was so, you know, people came in. Andrew Eldridge, Andy Taylor, as it me, he came down. And there were a few names, you know, uh, who saw the whole event, but it was a bit of a shambles. I lost money at the end of it. I even got uh, a company called Jetta Sounds to film it because everything was cheaper then, you know, the video cameras and all that. They said, oh, it'll cost eight fifty to film it. I said, well, I'll. I'll give you eight fifty, um, but uh, after that money is recovered, uh, I want fifty percent of whatever profits you make over that. So I actually paid for them to do it. All the wages were, were done, and again, you know that when I tried to sort of chase them, uh, they'd gone bust and given all the uh, the footage to uh, Cherry Red. And oh. I was like. Well, you know, I'm supposed to get 50% of profits. How does that work? You know, you, you've gone bust and you've given it away. And, you know, a similar thing with the first one, the first film. Uh, just, you know, 
bad people. And so, yeah. as, you know, I just, I don't chase, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I don't go for solicitors and all that because it costs you a lot of money. I don't chase these things because I know what they'll do. You know, you can spend a load of money chasing it. And if it's too close, they just fold. And that's it. You know, you've, you're stuck with paying a solicitor on top. So I've learned to just pull the shutters down on it, move on and do something else. And that's what I do. I just keep moving on and uh, forget about the spilt milk. Yeah. Uh, which is which is the best policy, and uh, and I had um, I was gutted that it wasn't at the Queen's Hall because, as you've mentioned there, my um, my parents were antique dealers, so I used to get dragged along like early in the morning to the Queen's Hall for years because my parents always made sure that they had a stall at the Queen's Hall because it was such a big um, productive day for them. So I I you know I spent my early years. Every time there was a, an antique fair there, I was there running around the building all day, getting, getting, and uh, ending up thoroughly filthy because it was a disgusting building that was that was just dirty everywhere. It was just dirt, and I was really looking forward to to playing it as a gig, and then then saw it had moved, and it's good to know that finally why it didn't happen there. But yeah, I was I was really gutted. Well, it, you know it. Your parents probably did Anthony Porter's flea market. Yes. My had a stall next to them. I used to do uh, 1930s, 20s, 30s pottery like Clarice Cliff before it was trendy. And uh, records and uh, paintings, you know, watercolors mainly. Right. And, uh, that was my speciality. Uh, and uh, I used to tick over with that. As well. I used to know a lot about. Uh, watercolor painting because my dad was uh, teaching, but we also dealt in in watercolors, and uh, we renovated uh, them as well. You know, he's in the watercolor society. The whole lot. yeah, no, so, you're right. It was the, it was the Porter's flea markets, yeah. And, uh, but you know, going back to uh, venues and uh, whatever. Uh, it's not always the venue. I, you know, I say, you know, it, it's the, the programmer, it's the booker that makes the venue. The Duchess wasn't ideal. It was kind of L-shaped. Yeah. And uh, one of the set of speakers was firing against the wall, which is about 10 foot away. And uh, so we had to devise ways of uh, get, getting the sound, you know, balanced to the people at the back as well. It wasn't ideal, but... Uh, Everywhere that I've promoted, you know, the Four Green Astoria, Irish Centre, whatever, has been the place uh, because I put on the right acts. And like you, you mentioned, like supports, you know, matching. Uh, a lot of thought, so I think uh, for a long time, who can I get to support this, this band? Who would fit in? No, that one won't work. That one won't work. And you know, it's a thought process, and I'll leave it a day or two. Think who who would best support, and then I, I pick pick on one, and it works. You know, I pick the right one, it works. But sometimes I put something that's completely opposite, just to uh, give the audience a change. You know, uh, yeah. You've got to think of the crowd that you're uh, uh, 
approach, you know, with the music, and you've got to think, will they like this? And uh, can't just put a random support band in. That doesn't work. Well, some, well, sometimes I'd, I'd get those little calendars that you design, the little calendars that tell you everything that's coming in the next, like, you know, few weeks, months, etc. And you'd see which, which I'd mark which gigs that I wanted to go to and who I wanted to see. And if there were support bands listed and I hadn't heard of them, I'd start doing my research you know weeks in advance knowing that i was going to see this band supporting this band for the first time ever so if i could you know if they had anything out you know like demos or or anything i would try and track down anything by bands that i hadn't seen yet that i knew i was going to see you know these these little support bands here and there um and sometimes it'd be a, it'd be a case of like picking up their demo at the gig um which which you know ha- used to happen a lot in, in those days, the Duchess, you know, all I, I listened to every tape that was sent to me, but I used to put local bands on first and foremost, unless the, the band were touring with a particular band. Uh, it would always be a local band, you know, and, you know, gave spot, support spots to Kaiser Chiefs when they were Runston, Parver, and Parver, and, uh, you, you know, uh, Gave supports to you as Acid Rain and, and um, quite a few other local acts who uh, elevated themselves to slightly bigger positions. In those days, it's strange because there were local bands that used to pull two or three hundred, you know, like the Prowlers and Little Chief and Brendan Croak and the Five O'Clock Shadows. I think these days there aren't that many yeah. local bands who have a big following. Like, you know, the Sue and the Roots used to play. Tw- Dude, dude, you you must have read my mind. I am sat here, and the one name right at the forefront of my brain is Zoot and the Roots. And of course, um, connection with us there is we were both from Harrogate. Um, Frank, the trombone player in Zoot and the Roots, became our producer and produced our first two albums, and um, and unfortunately, um, you know, passed away. Listen, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, a lovely guy whose whose kids are you know still in the business and still you know still working on venues and stuff doing stuff yeah yeah it's um uh, but yeah you're right that these these local bands that that could pull you know two or three hundred people it's incredible yeah and uh, you don't seem to get that there may might be some but they they sort of start to pull and if they're on a rise then the next one minute they're playing the Brunel, and the next minute they're playing uh, the O2 or something like that. It's it's it doesn't seem to be like the bands that oh you know I'll put these in and and they'll pull a few and keep it going. Yeah. The uh, thing is, you you mentioned the flyers thing. So you know, I, I I was working sixteen hours a day because I was not only like running the pub, you know, as a I was a landlord for the first few years, but I was also hand doing the, the flyers, which weren't that good. When uh, PCs came in, that was, you know, it's like you, you could get your template and, and fill it in. But before that, it was all hand done. You know, it's all cut, cut and paste up to about the mid-90s. Yeah, and there's there's many a there's many a group on Facebook with pictures of you of those um uh, of those timetables that you that you used to make, 
uh, where where people you know people are just constantly pointing at the band names in it and um, and how much you know how cheap it was. They're they're everywhere. They're everywhere. You can go on Facebook, go to any old venue group, and somebody's dropped those in there at some point. Gone. Oh, I found this from the Duchess of York. Print them every week, and uh, in the early days before the Duchess, I used to cycle everywhere. I used to cycle to Wakefield, uh, battle to York, and get the train. But then drop them in York at Red Rhino, Red Rhino, yeah, or Wakefield, Bradford, you know, everywhere, you know, and uh, just move around and make sure that the record shows had them because I know that if it didn't do it itself, wouldn't get done. You know, I started doing, trying to do shows outside Leeds and work with local councils, and I'd send them posters and I'd send them flyers, and they, they had paid people, you know, to publicise and promote the town hall or the theatre or the venue, and I'd end up going, and there'd be nothing put up anywhere, you know, and you'd go and, you know, you'd go in the office and the posters are there and flyers are there, and it was like, you know, if you don't do it yourself, it won't get done. You know, even James Brown, you know, who wrote at the time Attack of the Zag, he, he came and he, he put a, a tenor in my top pocket. And I said, what's that for? He says, well, you paid me to leaflet university uh, a few years back and I didn't do it and you gave me a tenor, so here's the tenor back. And I just thought, yeah, well, that tenor, you know, might have been worth quite a few customers to me. Yeah, yeah. If it's not their money, they're, they're not going to make it for you. You know, a few will, but you know, a lot, lot won't. They'll just think, yeah, it's easy to take the money and not do the work. Yeah, yeah. And and over the years, you've, I mean, you've had uh, so many, so many, like you know, classic bands who played. Um, the Duchess over the years. I remember being there in 85. I saw Scream there, Dave Grohl on drums. That was his first European tour. I saw um, Mac Lads, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, d- d- Dave Grohl, that was, yeah, that was one of his first gigs. Nirvana came after, but he wasn't with them then. Yeah, I think it yeah. was somebody who was drumming for them then. But the second time I put Nirvana on the poly, uh, uh, Dave Grohl was with him, I think. I think I might have been in that gig as well. Um, was that for Nevermind? Uh, no, the first, the, the Bleach, I think, was the first. Ah, one. right, okay. I, I was doing uh, uh, just Nirvana and L7, and uh, Flaming Hand, they used to do a few gigs at the Duchess. They they had a, a, a package with Victor's family and arm. And, uh, you know, I just said, it's a bit daft, you know, doing the same type of music, you know, Duchess and, and the Polly. And so we amalgamated all that. So that gig had four top grunge acts and uh, only pulled about 500. And a few months later, it uh, smells like tea. Team Spirit that was rotated in an MTV and then they were the biggest band in the world for a short time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so what, what would they like to work with? Did you have much interaction with them? 
I'm best with uh, Chris uh, Novesli. Uh, you know, I spoke to him for a long time and uh, Kurt, you know, uh, a little bit. And uh, But he, was, he seemed to be sort of shy and a bit offhand. Uh, you know, the first time they played, you know, we did, we got the pool table out, you know, shut the curtains and went on until about three or four in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I re- I'm sure it was, I remember having a, a conversation with Chris. I think he told me that he was in uh, a Gang of Four tribute in Seattle, you know, before... Uh, he joined Nirvana and he was happy to be in Leeds because Gang of Four started in Leeds and the whole lot. And uh, I'm sure it was, I had a conversation with one of those grunge guys and I'm sure it was Chris and Wesley about Gang of Four that he was really happy. You know, because yeah. The, the spiritual home, as it were. Like I said, you had everybody on from Nirvana to the Mac lads. You know, there was no. Uh, were, were there any? Were there any acts that were you know that were banned that were persona non grata? There's two really. You know, all in the, I was there twelve years, and all the time there were two that really pissed me off. Uh, and it it wasn't a band. One of them was uh, Courtney Love. It was just a pain in the bum. He was just going around. You know, uh, have you got a cigarette? Have you got a fag? You know, going around everybody, uh, bumming cigarettes off them. And, and uh, uh, oh, in the office, can I, can I use your phone? I need to speak to Kurt and all this. And she was like really on my case as a promoter all the time and everywhere, you know. And, uh, and I just, Bit mad this one, wanting attention all the time. Thinks that's what it was. Uh, the, the other one was uh, uh, Paris Angels from Manchester, and they came like with a, a you know a bunch of hangers on. There were two lads. They said were their minders and all that. But you know while while they were on a, a fight started, you know two. And the miners are just stood there doing nothing. So I had to grab both of them, both of the guys, and chuck them out. I remember, took them out, put them on the street, and they were there running across Vicar Lane, punching each other right, right into the distance. <laughs> the dread, dreadlock guys didn't do it. And I said, I thought you were supposed to be miners. You could have missed that when it started. And, uh, but they didn't. But anyway, they, uh, I, I let them stay. Because there were a lot of them in in the at the top room, which was like a bedroom, and in the in the cupboards, uh, you know, my son used to say, my young son, he said, had duvets. My young son had these uh, Dungeons and Dragons. You know, he's about eleven at the time that he painted, you know, figures that were in the cupboards, and they went there and they uh, they stole the duvets, dropped them out the window, you know, to put in the van, and they stole my. Uh, little lads, Dungeons and Dragons figures. And I just saw what a bunch of seaworth. Oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they were from Manchester. What do you expect? Yeah, that's another awesome. Let's call it, there are some decent people from Manchester. <laughs> yeah, there is. There is. I'll allow it. Some. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of the Mac lads, there was there was a live album, a legendary live album recorded at the Duchess by them. It was just before I took over the pub, so that that wasn't one of mine. Ah, right. Okay, I didn't realise. Yeah, it was uh, in between. It was called the pub with no name, and then it was, uh, the brewery insists on Duchess of York, and then uh, uh, which lasted for about six months. Uh, and in that period, that's when they played. And then I took over in March 1988. So the the, the thing yeah, was just before I took over. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I did promote there uh, two years previously. So basically I said, uh, you know, uh, Mick Longbottom was the landlord, asked me to promote there. And I went there and I said, look, the stage isn't big enough. You know, it only it was like a little small semicircular stage, about nine inches off the ground. And he said, "Oh, I'll, uh, I'll put a stage in if you want." So I went with uh, uh, some friends of mine, uh, Barry from Transylvania, PA, and Mick Fletcher, and I think John Strong was there, and a few other people. And uh, we constructed the stage there out of uh, railway sleepers and eight by fours. Uh, overnight and with sandbags under, under the uh, drum stool on the semi, you know, under where the drums are on the semi-circuit thing. And uh, I put a few acts on there at the time. I put uh, Nico on and uh, Easter House and uh, a few others like that. But Mick used to let the lead service crew lot in, you know, in the side room and you know, towards the end of the night, they'd be singing uh, Legion United chants and all that. And I said to me, I, I don't want to be putting pants on here while, while, you know, uh, while people are disturbing the gate. And uh, so I left that and then I, I went to the story as a partner. And uh, um, and then I came, heard the Duchess was going, I came and took it over from Nick. And it was in that in-between period that, that might have to play a bit of a long story. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, I get it. But that's an amazing story about that stage because, like, you know, to a band, a stage is a stage, but to somebody who's had to build it from the ground up, it's something completely different. You've got to have a decent stage. You've got to have a decent venue, although the venues at the Duchess were, were not great. You know, the, the upstairs one was okay, and the one that the Paris Angels had used was above that as well. And... Uh, but the the uh, dressing room for the support uh, was really a toilet. You know, it was just a, a small room at the side of the stage. You know, I was a bit embarrassed about that, but you know, to actually construct a uh, uh, a bigger room would have cost a lot of money, and uh, the, the pub wasn't making that much. It wasn't making that much because. Yeah. As a promoter, everybody sees your successes. About three or four hundred people see your successes, but only about twenty people see your failures. You know, yeah. so the majority think, "Oh, you must be making loads of money. Must be making a fortune." But what I work on is if I get five out of ten right, gigs right, I've broken even. If I get six out of ten gigs right, I've made a bit of a profit. And if I can up it to eight out of ten gigs, then 
then, you know, I'm quits in. But it, that's how it works. It were, you know, there were some great nights, there were some packed houses, but there were also some nights, you know, when only a few came. Yeah, yeah. And I, oh, in those days, you know, I had to give guarantees to that. Very few of them would do it, uh, you know, just percentages. Uh, some of them, like the first time I put Oasis on, I was paying 100 quid. And uh, they pulled about 12 people. And uh, at the time, there was a band playing the clubs, like a duo, soft cell type duo. And they were called Oasis as well. And, you know, so I said to them afterwards, I said, you want to change your name? Like Oasis, uh, you know, it's the, the name of a mucky sauna. You know, it's, it's, it's not right, but they, they, uh, <laughs> they did all right with the name. <laughs> Well, you want to change your name. Um, the police are told, oh, you should change your name because you you get stopped by the real police. police. You know, they'll stop you and say, you know what, you use an army. And uh, the other one was Nirvana because, uh, as I said, you know, uh, Chris, um, that there's, there's a, a band uh, in the 60s called Nirvana who had a top 20 hit called Rainbow Chaser. And... Uh, I said, you know, and they're probably still around, you know, so maybe you should check. They were only support band at the time. They weren't, like, supporting Tad. I said, you know, really, you know, we should change it. And uh, on the flyers, I thought, I'm not going to put Nirvana. I'll put an H on the end, Nirvana, you know, so they'll know it's not the uh, Rainbow Chase a lot. And uh, they said, you know, I remember Chris saying, you know, oh, we'll deal with that you know, if it comes up. And it did come up, and I think it cost them about 150 grand to, you know, locate the, the original Havana. I think the original Havana uh, made more money by re-releasing their albums and, uh, you know, people buying them by mistake in the record show. But that's, that's so let me get this straight. You told, you told Nirvana, Oasis and the police to change their name. Stop doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good, good idea. That's not a very good record. They are crap names, aren't they? Oasis is a crap name. It's just everywhere you go, you know, there's songs called Oasis. And there's even Leisure Centre called Oasis, big Leisure Centre, loads of things like that. And, and they just thought, the police, you know, it's like you're caught in, you're caught in trouble here, you know. They're going to, you know, arrest you every time they get it. <laughs> but, you know, obviously they were thinking differently from me. I think they just think, you know, it's, it's a big name. People will notice it and remember it. And that's probably why, you know, people remember it, you know, if it's corny and if it's in your face. And, uh, and I mean, obviously, you know, the, these were great years. And, and, you know, personally, I can't thank you enough for for those years at the Duchess of York and everything else, they were just they were amazing. When did things start changing? When did you start thinking, I'm not sure this is something I want to be involved with anymore? I went to the new Roscoe and I was there for about 15 years, I think, the new Roscoe, putting bands on four nights a week. That that was a, a similar thing with the stage. You know, I said to know he had a stage which the, the members of the public were sitting on the side of the stage, you know, look up and I said, the stage is good. I, I, I can't get the big bands. 
unless you put a decent stage in. And uh, yeah, he did. He, he got a friend of ours, Andy Gibney, uh, to build the stage and the dance floor. You know, that's what I said. I would have liked a dressing room, but it was just a curtain at the side of the stage. But, you know, that's what bands want. They've been traveling all day, you know, all afternoon or whatever. They turn up. They want like a green room somewhere where they can go away and have a lie down, have their own shower and toilet, which the Roscoe didn't have. But the the uh, Brunel took it on board, you know, when I went there, and they built an extra wing, you know, which has a shower and toilets and uh, a nice dressing room and a smaller dressing room in each in each venue. And I mean, that's a level, that's a level of attention that is, you know, is sadly lacking because you're absolutely spot on. All you want to do when you get to a venue is you want to walk in, get a look at the actual room and the stage, the setup. If you haven't already, like, you know, seen it on a website or whatever, you want to have it, you want to check it out. And then it's just, where's the dressing room? So you can dump your gear and just relax and know that that is your that's your space that's your inner sanctum for the night and there's nothing worse than than having to use the van outside or because it it puts people on edge for a whole night because you're just constantly wondering is that going to be safe there is that all right there well the, the duchess main dressing room was upstairs so you know the public could really have access to it and it had a couch and two leather white leather couch and two chairs. It didn't have its own toilet or anything. You know, if if I opened it up, you know, to the top one as well, there was a toilet and shower up there if they wanted to use it. But it wasn't wasn't great. You know, it you know, with uh, things like that, you you forget you you've got to pay cleaners as well to come and do it, or do it yourself. But it, you know, there's more work around, but yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely and i'm just i'm just thinking so what was the uh, and and you know maybe maybe it's still to come but what was the what was the biggest event that that you were that you've ever been involved with well obviously the future armor festivals um i stage managed uh, the leeds reading festival for a while uh and uh but, you know, I was involved in that, but I didn't promote it. And, uh, other than that, you know, uh, I, I don't recall any bigger festivals than the, the Future Art Festival. That, yeah. That well, no, they were, I mean, they, they were they were huge at the time. And, um, you know, the stuff the stuff of legend, it was awesome. It was awesome to be able to play one um, because there was always that, that, you know, there was always talk of future. And where did the name come from? Basically, you know, my working title was uh, the world's first science fiction music festival. And the idea was to uh, science comic stalls and badge stalls and, you know, science fiction related and show some science fiction films. I had a lot of films booked, including Barbara and all that from the British Film Institute or whatever. And just... <coughs> A couple of days before the event, they said, you can't have the films. And I said, why? He says, well, we only rent them out to places, uh, you know, that have 250 people in. You know, you're, you're, you're getting 5,000 people in. So, 
Yeah. Well, they wouldn't rent them out to me. So I had to search around for some scrappy little bits of film, you know, just to kind of fill it in. And some of the students from at least art college did some sculptures and made parachutes and stuff like that. And I had a bouncy castle. There's always, there's always a way around it, isn't there? There's always a way around. Well, it was just a bouncing area, not a castle. And, uh, so that didn't last long. And, uh, but the biggest thing uh, with the first one was at the end of the day, the whole hole was full of detritus, all rubbish from burgers and cans and stuff. And the, there were uh, people selling that in the hall, but they paid the Queen's Hall you know, for their stands and they made a fortune out of it. But at the end of the day, you know, all that, you know, I had to use my crew to sweep it all up into a corner on the first day and that was by the second day. And so, you, you, you know, the, the Queen's Hall, they didn't uh, plan for a, uh, for anything like that. You know, it was their rubbish, really. You know, it's what they were selling to people. And uh, they should have had a couple of skips you know, outside that could have been filmed. But anyway, they did get a couple of skips and they charged me for it as well. And the first one, they were supposed to uh, have the stage you know, that they do for other gigs. And the day before, they, there's nothing turning up. I said, well, oh, I can't do it. So I was stuck without a stage. So I had to ring around all these scaffolding firms to get the scaffolding together. This is just the day before the event. And I got some eight by fours from Useware Timber in the dark arches and some black paint and ordered some black plastic, which cost about and two rolls of that. It cost about at the time it cost about 300 quid. Bloody you know, hell. Like some of these big heavy rolls to sort of skirt around the stage and uh, stable guns. And uh, a lot of the punks who used to come to the F Club for that. Uh, they, came in to help and they, they helped set it up. And, uh, it was the, the uh, eight by fours are still, paint was still drying when uh, we were letting the bands in. <laughs> you know, I think we started off about an hour and a half late, you know, we just waited till everything ready. But we still managed to uh, get them all up because basically I'd used uh, uh, done what nobody had done before, which was uh, divided the stage into two so that while one band were playing on one side of the stage, uh, the other band were line checking. You know, so as soon as one band finished, another one would start on the other stage. So managed to get through really quickly like that. And that you know, I had a Dutch promoter, William Venom, who was there, who did the Pink Festival after that. And another... Belgian promoter Herman Sherman, who actually stole the name Future Hour for one of his, well, some of his events over there. And they used the same system. And, uh, you know, but I think I was the first to do it that way. But I just sense to do it like that. You know, two sets of lighting and, uh, it makes total it makes total sense, and nearly every festival that and nearly every festival that we play these days operates the same that exact system. I think anybody, not even ready. I used to actually use the PA Entech that, that used to do the Reading Festival, and they hadn't done it there, you know. So, um, but yeah, it works, you know. 
stuck out of the side. Or stuck yeah. And you did. Um, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned comedy earlier as well. And um, Frank Sidebottom was was an MC on your uh, on one of your future armors. Did you? You know, it it seems strange now when there's things like comedy clubs. You know, every you know fairly easily accessible. That that you know that comedy would be in a a same venue as music and stuff like that. Um, was that something that you'd always envisaged? Yeah, you know, just a little bit of something for everyone. I, I didn't uh, promote all the comedy stuff. I did promote some comedy stuff. At uh, least Alternative Cabaret used to do the Sundays comedy, and there's some good names, you know, Joe Joe Brand, and, um, um, uh, Steve Coogan, and uh, lots of people like that. You know, used to play on the Sundays, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, if they couldn't get a company out and put a folk act in. So Sundays was really for a quieter kind of act. Um, but, um, you know, it all works. It was just a little bit of something for everyone, you know, whatever kind of music you want to. I didn't put opera on. I put very little jazz on. Uh, uh, I did put some jazz on, but not a lot. There was Leeds Jazz were doing the jazz scene at the time. Um, I, you know, put African music, reggae music. You know, used to put a little bit of everything. Um, you know, S. C. Roji, uh, uh, R. L. Burnside. People, you know, was a proper old blues guy. And uh, uh, I think the oldest one was uh, Honey Boy Edwards, who's about eighty odd, nearly ninety. You know. Um, you know, lots of good people play the Duchess, but, you know, I put the bigger acts on the Irish set, you know, Steve Earle, John Martin, Richard Thompson, um, um, <laughs> there's too many to, but they're all big, you know, the, the, the uh, Beautiful South, the Oasis and all that, you know, the big acts played the uh, Irish Center at the time, and then the Town and Country Club open. They took a lot of the uh, the bigger acts away. Obviously, there were bands that you that you saw coming through, and you thought, you know, look, yeah, they're gonna they're they're gonna do well, and they did. But is there is there any band that sticks in your mind over the years, or any number of bands that stick in your mind over the years, where you've seen them and thought, like, wow, you know, great show. Clearly, you know, they've got a fan base and everything else, and and. But it, it it never got anywhere. It never, you know, bands that you thought were destined for greatness just disappeared. Yeah, there, there are a lot of bands like that. You know, uh, local bands like, you know, I never uh, understood why certain the Roots didn't make it on a national level. People like John Strong and Charlie Speed, uh, you know, leads. Charlie Speed was a great guitarist. John Strong, a uh, fantastic songwriter, you know, and they... They were always just bubbling with never sort of took off nationally. Uh, there's been loads of bands like that. Yeah, there's more, unfortunately, there's more like that than there is that go on to bigger things. So it's something that, that I have thought about a lot, you know, just why, why some bands make it and some bands don't. And a lot of it is just the way the publicity is happening, a lot of it, the way they're, they're manipulated into people's consciousness. 
And you can see that more with the internet. You know, Ed Sheeran, you know, is supposed to be been a, a, an internet sensation and took off, but, you know, him and Dell and people like that into drama, showbiz school. You know, it wasn't an overnight success, you know, through YouTube. It was like... As yeah, well, I mean, Ed Sheeran is like famously pretty much played anywhere where he could rock up with a guitar and, and, and do a show. You know, there is there is still occasionally those people who, uh, you know, do do slog it through the clubs. Yeah, I mean, fair play to him. He, you know, he, he did put that little bit of uh, slogging around in. You know, but very few actually do that these days. You, you see somebody like suddenly become big. And like at the Brunels, a lot of bands and acts that play there now that I've never heard of. And even though, you know, I listen to BBC Six, Radio Six, and, I, you know, I read the Cut more Journal, and I'm just thinking, but if they come out and they, they these bands sleep, they sell out, and I, I look at them and I just think, some some have been time, I just think, well, I've heard all that before, you know, it's like, it's nothing new. Why why do they suddenly become big? And it's like, well, they are young and good looking, you know, that might. <laughs> you fit on something there that I do think is part of it, which is which is timing. I think sometimes you think you think, hang on, you know, I I'm there was a band doing exactly this like two years ago, died without a trace, and you see someone else and it's like, but all of a sudden everybody wants this now. It's like when Oasis first played, you know, there was a band doing that kind of stuff better than them called The Real People from Liverpool. And they actually went in Real People's studio, Real People, uh, the the guys that showed them how to get that harder guitar sound and even did guide vocals. And some of the early singles, the, the guide vocals was kept in. It's a chemistry thing. It's like, you know, the Beatles only took off when Ringo Starr joined, you know, and they were doing okay with Pete Best, but when Ringo Starr joined, the chemistry was there, you know, and the image was there. And, uh, it, it, there is that kind of, yeah, as I say, it's chemistry. It's, you know, if you've got the right chemistry. The thing with some bands is that, you know, like one member will go on to a drug and the others aren't on the drug. So if they're not all on the same drug, then then they're not in agreement with each other. They're not in accord, are they? They're, uh, you know, take drugs. I'm just saying that because uh, <laughs> of uh, split us in many, many bands. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, burnout and, and, and everything else you hear. Um, and, and sometimes, like you say, it is just, yeah, chemistry is chemistry is the key. Also, I think some bands have genuinely great songs and all the rest of it, but um, they can't communicate them. As in, you see them live and you just think, this is like this just isn't doing anything. You know, like the great singer songwriters, like Loudon Wainwright and Roy Harper and all that, they communicate in between uh, songs. Uh, some communicate too much. I remember p- putting. Uh, Rambling Jack Elliott on uh, uh, a couple of times. Uh, I put him on at the new Roscoe, and uh, he's the guy who actually taught uh, Bob Dylan Woody Guthrie songs because Jack Elliott actually toured with Woody Guthrie and uh, was there at his hospital bedside, and that's where he met Dylan. And he taught, taught him 
was one of the best you can play at the time as he was dying at Huntington's career, I think. And uh, he, he uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliot, uh, he, you know, he's just a great, great fella. And, uh, but he used to talk a lot in between the songs. And uh, I remember the girls, another song, he says, hang on, he says, they don't call me Ramblin' Jack for nothing. You know? And so, you know, he must have used that many times. But yeah, he, he, he talked more than songs. But I think you've got to make the, uh, the audience like you. And yeah, uh, uh, Larry Wayne, I said, you know, he uses a system where he divides the room up into six and he'll play to that corner, that corner, down there, middle, down there. You know, each, each song is aimed at different section of the crowd. So at the end of the gig, uh, each, uh, everybody thinks that he was singing to them, you know, towards them. And so that's a little tip for singer-songwriters. Don't just put your head down, and, you know, just, you know, move your head around. And oh, there's, there's, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than that, you know, that bass player who looks like they've dropped a contact lens, you know, and just put, like people completely just... You're, you're absolutely right. You've got to communicate. I think Bill Wyman used to just stand there, didn't he? Looking miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But some some people can get away with that, though. You know, some people can. You, you, you some people have that. And I guess that's called charisma. That was cool. You know, if you're not joining in with everybody else, you know, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. John, I, I I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's been it's been absolutely wonderful. It really has, and um. Thank you for everything that you did for me, for my band back in the day. Um, it really was appreciated. We have some of the greatest times of our lives um, playing those shows and going to those shows. And we were regular audience members, regularly on your stages. And the whole thing is just a glorious time in life that um, wouldn't have happened without you. So thank you so much. Thank you for uh, allowing me to speak to people and put my case forward. You know, I'm not a massive success. But I've actually had a great time along the way. You know, you know, most, you know, nearly all the time, I've enjoyed practically everything. I like seeing people come to my gigs who have been coming to my gigs for 40 odd years. And, and uh, I love all that, meeting the old customers and uh, seeing how they've changed. A lot, a lot of the time, though, uh, I, I don't recognise people because in the day, you know, they had hair, different colours and all that green. And now you get, you know, bald guys, <laughs> shaved heads, um, specs. Right here. Well, put it this way. I, I think we'd have walked past each other in the street, absolutely no doubt. But I've got your face now. So um, next time next time I'm in the area, um, uh, yeah, don't be surprised if we bump into each other. Okie doke. And that is the promoting legend. That is John Keenan. What a top bloke. I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and yeah, it was a little bit of a, a jaunt down memory lane for me as well, as I'm sure you're aware during the course of the interview, the way it starts and set it up. I, I lived in the Duchess um, of York, the pub. <laughs> Sounded a bit weird. Uh, I discovered so many bands there. It, it, honestly, it was just, you'd get these, I'll, I'll try and 
um, include some pictures with the podcast or a link somewhere. If there's nothing there, sorry, couldn't do it. But um, some of the old flyers and stuff that used to, that I mean, you'd just get like a, t- a flyer for about two or three months and there'd be bands on every night and you'd just be circling all the bands you want to go to, all the gigs you want to go to, and then work backwards because you're going to have to chuck some of those because you just can't afford to go to all of those gigs because it was like you know it was a bus journey there do the gig come back bus uh, sorry not bus journey train journey there and train journey back um and ticket price on top of that you know all costs money so um oh great days though great days really um really brought them back excuse me sorry yeah they really brought back the good days there and um the good days, the good old days, whatever you want to call them. It was fun, okay? It was fun. Uh, Hope you enjoyed that, guys. As always, thank you very much for listening, even to the end. That's very kind. Um, Try and support the podcast on Patreon if you can. Totally understand if you can't, if things are tough. I absolutely hear you. So, this is the end of the podcast. Nothing really to chuck in here other than to thank you for your continued support. Love doing this. Love that you guys seem to love it as much as I do. Just keep on subscribing, keep sharing links, keep telling people about um, the podcast. Really, really appreciate it if you did that. And if you're listening on Spotify, just remember there is a shed load of episodes you might not have heard because Spotify is weird with podcasts, okay? Bear that in mind if you are listening on Spotify. Then, it, it, you know, for me, it's not the best podcast uh, platform out there. But that's because it's dealing with so much, you know, most podcast platforms are podcast only. So anyway, a little bit of a tangent there. Just thought I'd throw that in there. A little bit of uh, consumer research I've been doing. Okay. So once again, thanks for listening. Wherever you are, hope you're well. Speak to you soon.